following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Well, good morning. It was a lovely, lovely chant, and uh, it's really nice just to see the way the community uh, operates here uh, at Common Ground. Um, I've known Mark uh, since we both went through the Community Dharma Leader training at Spirit Rock starting in 1997. And um, I've always admired his his approach to leading the community, and it's really flowered so much here, and, and particularly having the family, the kids, at the same time we've got people practicing in here. Uh, it's really a great model for how our communities can develop. Uh, um, I don't think that in California quite has the, we don't have these Midwestern values that you guys have. <laughs> Communities, solid, we're all out for ourselves and driving the freeway and trying to become movie stars. So, <laughs> But it's been really a, a wonderful weekend for me here uh, to practice and, and uh, and be with the community. And uh, over the years of my several visits here, I've developed some friendships, and uh, that's very sweet. Um, so, so this morning, I wanted to talk about uh, the balance between mindfulness and effort. So both of these are elements of the Eightfold Path, which is the teachings, the fundamental teaching the Buddha gave, really how to end suffering or how to become enlightened or how to find freedom, however you want to uh, define that. But uh, but this is the path he laid out. Um, and in the, the translations that we get uh, of the ancient texts, uh, it's often said, uh, we often use the word right to, to in these eight, the Eightfold Path, so it's right mindfulness and right effort. Maybe not the best translation, uh, because it implies that there's sort of right and wrong, and that's not quite the way uh, I think it's most useful to think of, uh, of the, these elements of the path that, that um, Another translation uh, talks about how the, this word uh, that's translated as right is sama, S-A-M-M-A. And it's actually related to uh, a word, a musical term for being in harmony. So, uh, or in balance. So, uh, <coughs> I'd like to think of it as, as uh, our mindfulness being in tune or in harmony. Or we want to be in harmony with mindfulness and with effort. The, uh, you know, parallel to the development of Buddhism, some really growing out of it in the West, is this movement, the mindfulness movement, uh, which has become pretty pervasive and, uh, and certainly has been uh, a wonderful way to bring 
a lot of these teachings into the mainstream culture without sort of alienating uh, people who might be turned off by um, the idea of uh, Eastern religion or uh, Buddhism. But uh, there's a risk in kind of extracting one piece of the Dharma of the Buddhist teachings and sort of elevating that to uh, a level where much of the rest kind of can get lost. So I've been um, working with some uh, mindfulness researchers, which is a lot of the stuff that's happening with mindfulness now, you know, and this is, this is what we do in our culture, right? We have to prove it. Uh, you know, we have to prove it scientifically. Um, because our own individual experience is incredible, apparently. Um, and this, of course, uh, you know, it really goes, uh, uh, it's very different from, shall I say, from the, from the Buddhist approach, which is very, very much personal and very much about our own experience. And how does this work for me? And the Buddha was always, and really Buddhist teachers are always putting it back on us as individuals to find our own wisdom, to trust our own wisdom, to trust our own hearts. And in fact, I, one of the problems in meditation practice is when people try to uh, follow a model that their teacher told them. Oh, I want to be like my teacher and practice like that and find that that's not working for them, but they keep doing it because that's the right way to practice, they think. And then, you know, what I often say is that you are your own meditation teacher. I have a friend who's a, been a therapist for a long time, and he, he sort of uh, says that he's, he's given up really most of the forms of therapy. He doesn't, I asked him, well, what kind of therapist are you? He's, you know, I, I don't, don't have a label. I said, well, what, what do you do? And he said, well, I try to teach people to have a therapeutic relationship with themselves. And I love that, and so I've adapted that to say that I try to teach people to have a meditative relationship with themselves. Nonetheless, we have this kind of research model. And um, so I've been working with these researchers and what they're doing. And you know, anytime a meditation teacher can get a job, we, we jump at it, you know. I mean, the Donna thing is all very well, but if somebody actually, I've got a contract. It's so this was an opportunity, you know. Oh, they're looking for mindfulness teachers, and they're doing at the University of California at San Francisco, which is a big research institution. And what they're doing research into is mindful eating. You know, all I know about that is how to eat a raisin. So if you've been around the you know, the Dharma community for a while, you've gotten the raisin exercise. Uh, but they've tried to expand that beyond raisins, which I think is wise. Uh, <laughs> man does not live by raisin alone, and neither, neither does woman nor any child. So I sort of arrived at this place, and they kind of looked at me and said, oh, yeah, we know who you are. Okay, because they knew about my work with the 12 steps. They know, are you sure you can just come in and, you know, we're going to be giving you a script and you're just going to have to follow this. And, you know, like a good uh, interviewee, I was like, oh, sure. 
no problem. You know, you always lie when you get in job interviews. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I've never done that, but I won't have any problem with that. So as soon as I started to work with their scripts, I was like, this, stop, you guys, you got problems. And so I started arguing with them, and they were like, ah, oh, this is just what we didn't want. You know, we wanted some, some person we could, you know, shape and control. And, you know, they're researchers, scientists, they want to control us. Sorry, I hope there's nobody out there. Uh, no, just having fun. But um, but eventually, um, one of the things that I ran into was that they had this idea of what mindfulness was. And I've been I've been actually kind of developing a mindfulness course for another researcher. So, uh, you know, I've never taken the mindfulness-based stress reduction thing, which some of you may have done. It's a you know, very helpful model. But so I'm kind of trying to figure out how to do that. So I kind of yeah, I've been looking at definitions. So here's sort of what I've written. This is a very typical. Sounds I probably stole it from John Kabat-Zinn, unconsciously or consciously. So I, mindfulness is a focused, non-judgmental awareness of what is happening in the present moment. With mindfulness, we look at the whole range of experience, the pleasant and the unpleasant, with a non-reactive, curious attention. And then I, I also stole from John Kabat-Zinn attitudes of mindfulness. So, and I, I added some of my own and subtracted some of his, but it's basically the same. Non-judging, patience, acceptance, curiosity, non-identification. So some of the attitudes of mindfulness. So there's this you know, openness that we're trying to develop. And this is um, really the, what's very difficult for us for probably any human being, but I can say in our culture, to uh, engage in our experience in this way, in this non-judgmental, accepting, open way. And so this is what's really emphasized in mindfulness training. And certainly in my own practice early on, this is what we heard over and over. Just watch things come and watch them go. Just let go. So this was kind of what these mindfulness researchers were working with, this model. And at a certain point, I said, well, you know, it would be helpful maybe to suggest that people do something with what's coming up. Because sometimes it's wise to make some effort to change things rather than just sit there and absorb or accept everything that's happening. Some things are not acceptable. Well, that's not mindfulness, I was told. Mindfulness is just to accept it. Okay, uh, folks, you're missing something here. Um, and this is the problem with extracting mindfulness from the Eightfold Path and leaving out all the rest. Um, I like to compare it to taking the vitamin C out of an orange and giving someone a pill and saying, here, here's your breakfast. <laughs> well, you might get some of the nutrition that you need, but you're going to be kind of hungry. You know, you're going to be missing something. Not to mention the pleasure of you know, the juice running down your chin, you know, experiencing the sensuality, the, the reality of, of the orange. So... Uh, you know, I suggested that they should consider that right effort 
is also part of the Eightfold Path. And I know you're not, they weren't trying to, you know, they wanted to avoid saying Buddhism. Um, I think there's something in the Bible about denying Christ three times, and it kind of reminds me of that in my harsher judgmental moments, um, which are rare. <laughs> occasionally they pass through the back of my mind, and I acknowledge them. Um, in any case, uh, I suggested that maybe they should start to talk a little bit about effort and how to bring that in. And this really turns out to be one of the great challenges of practice. Because how do you bring effort in a non-judgmental way, in an accepting way, in an open way? So in this, this is my little packet now. I'm using for trying to sort of be a mindfulness teacher. It's a little awkward for me. One of the things that I said in here is the essential answer to how to make effort in mindfulness is that we have to bring mindfulness to our effort. It's kind of poetic and mathematical and enigmatic. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Suzuki Roshi in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. He's talking about effort and how you just let things come and let them go. And he says, but, but this is the secret to practice. How to, to do like what they call effortless effort. The secret to practice. So you kind of go, okay, next paragraph. What's the secret? And of yeah. course he doesn't tell. <laughs> because the secret really is only something you can know inside bringing mindfulness to your effort. So what this means is that as we are sitting and as things arise, we first observe them and then we try to accept them and hold them in a balanced way, in a non-reactive way. And then we watch what happens to them. If it dissolves, you know, if a thought comes up and you just have that thought of, you know, vacation, okay, no, planning, planning, okay, come back to the breath, and you come back to the breath and it dissolves, you go, okay, that was all the effort I needed. All The only effort I needed was the effort to be mindful of that experience. If, on the other hand, something comes up, your mother, that example. Duh. Mother, mother, come back to breath. Mother, mother. And the story starts to come, right? The history, all the ways that she was such a failure. Um, I'm just talking about my mother and not yours. These persistent stories that stay with us, that just mindfulness, accepting it, we accept it, and then instead of it dissolving, it seems to get bigger and stronger. Well, what do we do now? 
now we, we've got to increase our effort. We have to try a little harder. And in fact, the Buddha has a whole other model for uh, effort that's um, not at all just accepting. In fact, it's quite energetic and effortful. Um, I know this is kind of a short morning, and uh, so uh, I want to make sure that I can kind of sum up this teaching uh, without uh, running over too much. Uh, so uh, 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 what I want to talk about is the four great efforts. And this is uh, the classic teaching on, on uh, right effort. And so I was thinking about an example of this this morning, and um, one of the themes sort of of this weekend, because it's been somewhat talking about depression. And uh, so I thought I would kind of use depression as a model. And I I know you're not all depressed, at least not right now, I hope. But, you know, over the course of this winter, most of you will become. And you can go out ice fishing or something, but other than that, there's nothing much to do, right? Once the football season is over, you know. So the four great efforts are to avoid uh, unskillful states that have not arisen, to abandon unskillful states that have arisen, to cultivate positive states that have not arisen, and to maintain positive states that have arisen. So, okay, there will be a test. So, So, to avoid um, depression that has not arisen, you might have a, a way of sort of maintaining your, it kind of goes to the fourth effort, maintaining your positive state, which is maybe you work out, make sure you get exercise, and um, you have a strong social support. You know, in 12 Steps, we have that program. In Buddhism, we have the Sangha, so the social support, so that you're connecting with people, not lonely. Um, Perhaps you work with a therapist um, or do some cognitive uh, work. So it, this is for obviously for someone who has had depression or has struggled with that. They kind of have a maintenance program to keep that from arising. And it's just kind of a, maybe fairly light, but, but it's what you do uh, to avoid that happening. This is obviously not mindfulness, but what's in the mindfulness part of this is that you are noticing, you are first of all aware that you have this tendency that's mindfulness. And then secondly, you are aware that right now you're not in that state. So you don't need to be doing the full court press. You're just kind of in this maintenance state. And you're also aware through your experience and having paid attention to the things that help you to stay balanced. So the second one. So depression arises. Sometimes our uh, efforts to avoid don't work. So then 
you ask yourself, well, what do I need now? And maybe, maybe if it's a severe depression, you need some uh, some uh, medication, or you start to go to more, do more intensive therapy. Uh, you start to, you know, work, apply yourself harder to that, to the the work that needs to be done. Maybe, you know, sometimes I find that a a ten day meditation retreat is tremendous, can really cut through some very difficult states. Uh, and, and so, uh, again, we're kind of asking ourselves, what's the appropriate tool or response to this situation, to this condition? Uh, sh- should I just accept it? Because there's also an element of this, of any mood, that just takes acceptance, actually. That mindfulness itself has a healing quality. Just paying attention. When we are, uh, the power of mindfulness, one of the powers of mindfulness, is that when we bring in attention and start to just watch something, it tends to push out the figuring out part. So particularly uh, with with this type of issue, but really with many emotional issues, when our thought process gets caught up in trying to solve an emotion, it actually has the tendency to feed the emotion. So when we take out the thought process and and replace it with just pure attention to the experience, to the visceral and emotional state, then there isn't room for the ruminative quality, the working it over and we just we leave it alone we just allow it to be and that emotion or that state then has a natural lifespan a sort of half-life and so this is one of the keys to working with with these kind of um, difficult emotions is to be non-interfering but very careful that we're watching them because when we stop watching them they tend to latch on to their traditional conditioned ways of being and and the thought processes sneak in and start to work with. So we keep that very attentive. Ah, ah. And what's difficult about this is that you're paying attention to something that's unpleasant. And our natural tendency is to to either try to ignore the unpleasant or make it go away. Our natural tendency is not to pay attention to the unpleasant, which is why when you're sitting and your knees start to hurt, what you think is, why don't they ring the bell? You know, I want this to go away. <laughs> or I have to learn how to sit in a better posture that will, so that I'll never have pain in my knees. Or it, can I move without making a lot of noise so that everybody knows that I'm a bad meditator because I move? <laughs> but if instead we just watch the sensation in the knee, then there's only one level of dukkha. Uh, uh, you, know, you may familiar, be familiar with the idea of the dukkha dukkha, which is there is pain, and then there is the reaction to the pain. This hurts, and I can't stand it. Or uh, I've got to make a change, and all that mental stuff that we do with it. So if we can just go and look at and feel the sensation as heat, tingling, unpleasant, but just resting in a kind of balanced awareness with it, then it's not so overwhelming. And this is the same with strong emotions. If we can rest with them, 
in a certain way and just allow them to be at times. So this is the balance, though, between the mindfulness and effort. The mindfulness is, is key to this. If what we do, as soon as we start to feel depressed, is going to try to fix it, fix it, fix it, well, you know, you're just kind of creating more stuff in a way. So, but, but if you just pay attention and, and if you're getting overwhelmed by it, you say, oh, well, you know, I'm just supposed to be mindful, it's okay. And you, you don't avail yourself of the other things. But, you know, sometimes it's better to get up off your cushion and take a walk and to break things up or to go hang out with your friends and say, oh, I'm just going to watch how bad I feel. <laughs> okay, they told me to just be mindful. Oh, I just, yeah, okay, now. And then you find yourself, you know, figuring out where you can pick up a shotgun, you know, to, to end all this. Oh, that was an interesting thought. Oh, okay, just come back to the breath. No, you know. You know, we have to use discriminating wisdom. So this is this balance, this very tricky balance with uh, mindfulness and effort. So let, let me talk a little bit about the more positive efforts, the, the um, cultivating that which is not risk. So trying to, um, you know, it's it, it's not enough. I mean, it's nice to not be depressed, but there's also the thing of being happy. So this is the other side. Well, we can cultivate happiness. Um, this is what uh, my teacher James Barris, he'll probably be visiting you soon because he has a new book coming out. And uh, you know, people who write books tend to travel a lot and visit everybody. Um, uh, he has a book called Awakening Joy. And he's been working with this for several years, actually for a decade at least, uh, but, but particularly uh, has developed a, a, um, a workshop for this a, a few years ago. And it's really about cultivating happiness and, and asking yourself, well, what makes me happy? Is there's a certain way in which, uh, you know, uh, I'll say Buddhists, but I, I don't know who, but, you know, people, some people can sort of think, well, happiness is kind of trivial, you know. I, you know, I have to deal with my existential angst, go to more Woody Allen movies. And, you know, and if, if occasionally I'm not miserable, that's okay, you know. But... Uh, but to actually uh, ask ourselves what makes us happy, and from the trivial to the profound, you know, from the chocolate ice cream to the three-month retreat, you know, what's you know what makes you happy, and to start to act on those things, to do those things for ourselves, you know, and and if we struggle with a low self-esteem or uh, you know, a feeling of unworthiness in some way, it can seem like, oh, well, you know, I shouldn't be doing that. I should be down at the soup kitchen helping out, you know, absolving, getting absolved from my sins, you know, rather than I should go to a funny movie, you know, and have, you know, or see some friends or, you know, lie on the couch and read a cheesy mystery. You know. But maybe, the, you know, we ask ourselves, you know, mindfulness asks, what do I need right now? What would be wise right now? And we try to look at now, and we look at the broader picture of, well, have I been lying on the couch for, you know, three days, you know, reading cheesy mysteries? Well, maybe that's out of balance. You know. But if I've been, you know, running around and doing service or working and taking care of people, maybe I need some couch time. You know, and this this kind of awareness of really, 
this kind of objectivity that mindfulness is trying to get at, get us a little bit out of our habitual conditioned ways of being. Well, you know, I need to do more and more to help people. I need to. I don't do enough. You know, I haven't been meditating enough. I've just got to do that feeling of, of, uh, you know, fulfilling somebody, somebody's demands. It's her mother again, actually. But sorry, maybe you guys don't have mothers like that. So there's this way of of cultivating the positive, cultivating happiness, and then maintaining. And what do we do to maintain that? When we when we find uh, that we've gotten to a place of feeling pretty good, now do we just kind of okay, great? Uh, I don't really need to meditate anymore because I'm feeling great. you know the mindful recent the mindfulness research that I've been working on. I said with mindful eating, and it's it's for it's to help people to lose weight, but not as in a, as a diet, but for people to change the way they eat so that they can maintain weight loss. Anybody here ever been on a diet? Anybody ever here gained the weight back? So that maintenance. So it's so easy. Well, I lost the weight. Great. Let's go out to, you know, house of pancakes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner today. You know, and so that that maintenance, that that showing up on a continual basis. I mean, this is really a 12-step principle that we this consistency of showing up, and you know, it's a practice principle as well. You know, if you come to common ground once a week and meditate for 20 minutes, you know, that's great. But it's kind of like going to the gym once a week and working out for 20 minutes. It's not going to really develop your meditation practice or your body practice. So uh, maintenance is what we do when we don't feel like doing it. And... um, and in some ways, I think, as I say, I think it connects back to the first of the efforts, the avoidance, maintenance of our positive state is how we avoid the negative states arising. Um, and for many people, it's the hardest part of practice to show up continuously. People can go on a retreat and really get into it, and then if, you know, a month or two later, it's kind of dissolved and they've kind of lost their energy. So, um, so bring mindfulness to your effort. What effort do you need to make right now in your practice? Yeah. Don't just sit there and watch everything happening. But don't just run around trying to make things happen. Find that effort. The Buddha talks about the middle way. And it's all, it always seems to come down to that. That's why there's no one answer for practice. And in Buddhism, it's not, we can't tell you, just do this and just do this, and then that's, you're fine, you're all set. You know? and, and, that's, you know, and that's what we all want. We want that answer. We go to the teacher, oh, what should I do? Well, don't know. Try this. How that goes. You have to see for yourself. You have to develop that meditative relationship with yourself and that therapeutic relationship with yourself, I'd say.
There was one other thing, but there always is. <laughs> I would love to um, talk with you and hear your thoughts and questions. So let's open it up and just um, hear your thoughts on this. And maybe we can uh, come up with more ideas. So thank you. Corrections, advice, <laughs> questions. Yes. Um, seeing things as they as they are. Um, <laughs> it already <laughs> sounds impossible to it me. It sounds absolutely impossible. <laughs> yeah. Because we're, so we're seeing that. <coughs> We're going to be time and time again confronted with our own preconceived concepts. And I'm wondering how you deal with that. Go Is there another me. question? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. I mean, yeah, this, this. We have to start with the first double truth, which is the truth of suffering. And it's also the truth of unsatisfactoriness of incompleteness, of imperfection. As if we're going into this practice thinking we're going to get the perfect you know, vision of exactly the right thing to do, we're always going to be disappointed. So we do our best. Clear Comprehension says that the, the first three aspects, there are four aspects of Clear Comprehension, the first three are about kind of deciding what to do. You know, see if you have the, um, ne the needed uh, abilities or whatever is necessary to do the thing you want to do. Um, see if, you, if it's in t aligned with the Dharma. See that your intention is aligned with the Dharma. The fourth one is that after you've done the thing, go back and see if it worked or not. So this is trial and error. And this is what the Buddha taught if the, in the Kalama Sutta, where people said, how are we supposed to know? We get all these different gurus, these great masters come and tell us, this is the way. No, this is the way. No, this is the way. You know, this is the way. I thought I should have a woman's voice in there. Um, and, and the Buddha said, well, you know, see for yourself. And sometimes this is you know, misunderstood to be, do your own thing, you know. But no, he says, try it, and then see if the results are beneficial. So try it. Look at the process of cause and effect. See what the actions you took are, and see what the effects are. I mean, this is, in fact, what mindfulness researchers are trying to do, right, in some level. Um, they don't trust their own experience, so they have to test everybody else's experience, I guess. But... Uh, you know, this is really the best we can do, I think. Yeah. Try it and see what happens. Now, fortunately, we have guidance from the Buddha and, of course, others. But, you know, there's this text, and this is why people study the text, to see what did the Buddha say we should do. And, of course, then there's all the <laughs> debates about because uh, the sutras have been passed down and adulterated. And, and uh, you know, there are some that say you should practice this way and some that say, that way. But ultimately, it comes down to this process of just seeing uh, cause and effect. For me, what I trust most is my intention. If I and as long as you know, even even when I make mistakes, that's okay. If my intention is 
basically good. Good. Yeah. And that I keep coming back to that. If I fall off, or, you know, then I just come back to that. That's the thing that seems to carry us ultimately. And another, it's another aspect of the Eightfold Path, right intention. If I have that and I keep coming back to that, then ultimately the trial and effect, trial and error um, process will uh, improve things over time. So are you saying, in a sense, that um, you sort of have an inner compass when you get to that point, trial and error, that you see your intention? Yes. It's a good way. Thank you. So, other thoughts? Uh-huh. Hi, my name is You have a hard, it's hard time staying in a, in a heart, heart yeah, place. Like, yeah. Because I get anxiety about, you know, well, they're, gonna, they're six years old and now they think they can build a fire at the party. You know? mm-hmm. So you have twin boys. Um, 
appreciate that what you are doing is acting out of loving kindness. So to give yourself that appreciation that even when you don't feel necessarily connected to a practice, that you are in fact living a practice, uh, you know, a, a really precious practice. So. That's not always right. <laughs> right. But but just karmically speaking, you know, if you are doing that with if you're caring for children with that kind of concern an effort to make their lives be safe and happy and productive, you're expressing loving kindness in the most fundamental way. We don't always feel it, but but that's your intention is clearly expressed through that. And you know, in the twelve steps we talk about we're powerless over alcohol. Well we're powerless over our children as well. And there's a point at which we have to let go. I mean, we have to protect them, of course, and that's our job. But um, but we can't uh, control their lives and their minds and who they're going to be. So there's a letting go that happens as well. So, but I, I want to kind of get back to like the root of the question of your concern is that you're that you're getting caught up in a kind of a negative energy with the kids out of your own anxiety about their behavior. Yeah. Right. And it's not. Parenting practice is not about that. Yeah, no, I mean, most parents just, that's just not practical. And that's why I point you towards the loving kindness, compassion, joy, those practices. Not even as practices, formal practices, but as guides or inspirations for you to, to, to think of, of what you're doing, to see what you're doing in that way. I mean, there can be a sense, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm, I don't have a practice now because I'm too busy or I'm too, but, you know, I'm just trying to po- point at the idea that maybe you do have a practice and your practice is parenting. That's a, that's a practice. It's not a meditation practice, but meditation is just one part of this process. Right? There's more to it than that. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think it goes well with what you're saying about mindfulness. You know, like the right effort part of it. There's definitely times where I feel very amazing as a mom, and there's other times where I just feel completely Yeah. So when you feel those things, can you be aware of that feeling? Oh, it's pretty clear. Okay. <laughs> And can you, and then can you then step back and take away the judgment? And this is where the compassion practice comes back on yourself. The appreciation practice comes back on yourself. Oh, this is hard. And your compassion for your mother comes in. 
Oh, this is why my mother was how she was. This is hard. You know, I bow to that. I bow to this challenge, to this struggle. You know, to to have some. Uh, it, it, I mean, it's just so important, uh, certainly for me, to be able to just take that half step back from my life experience and see it in a larger context. Understand that that what I'm doing is a very challenging thing, and I don't always feel good about it, but I'm you know I'm doing my best and. That's, you know, I can't do more than that. And can I, can I have forgiveness for myself? Can I accept myself? Can I accept that this is the best I can do? And not compound, like, oh, you know, the kids are behaving really badly, and then add something onto that. Well, that's my, that's my bad parenting, you know, or, you know, what's wrong with me? And, you know, adding to the the difficulty, making it worse, rather than saying, oh, this is challenging. Oh, okay, let me take another breath and dive back in and do my best. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself as you are to your children. You know, the, one of my favorite images from the suttas is in the Loving-Kindness Sutta where the, the Buddha compares loving-kindness to the, the love that a mother has for her children. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness throughout the entire world. So the Buddha is saying that you want to know what loving kindness is? It's mother's love. It's the love that a mother gives a child, and the father's love. It's, that's that is the essence of loving kindness. And people come to meditation centers to try to get that. They spend weeks on retreats trying to get that. And you've got it every day, right there. So. Thank you. Yeah. Well, at first they tried to get rid of me. <laughs> they said, okay, if you're so smart, show us what you would do. And it was with an attitude of like, okay, we'll, we'll look at this and then we'll say, well, I they were like, we're never really not sure this is working out. Maybe you could show us what you would do. And so I wrote up this really brilliant thing <laughs> and sent it to them. And they were like, oh. Um, you know, I think we'd like to bring you on as a consultant to help us form our curriculum. <laughs> and so now I'm doing curriculum development with them. It was it was, it was quite a struggle. Uh, it was it was painful for them and for me. Uh, it's kind of the way uh, I'm a troublemaker at heart. You know, I think most rock and roll musicians are. You know, um, and drug addicts. You know, hippies and all the things that I was. Um, but uh, and so I, I don't really manage situations like that very well. Like kind of gracefully. Oh, you know, I think 
I have some suggestions for it. It's more like, oh, you guys, this, this doesn't make any sense. You know, don't you know? You know, and I'm kind of getting into these arguments with them, and they're getting. But uh, we worked worked through it, and yeah, it's been it's been really fun. So I've gotten to be really actively involved in, in this project. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I mean, you say that, uh, you know, I live in California, and coming to Minneapolis, I feel like there's much more of a social fabric and community here uh, than there is in, in Berkeley. But, but certainly, uh, our culture is founded on this principle of individualism, which is uh, worked, you know, in very positive ways and very destructive ways. And, and it's it's this tension that's built into our, the, the American personality, the American culture. And, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I know what your question is uh, or that I can answer it, but I'll, I will, so I'll just talk about what I want to talk about, um, <laughs> which is that... Um, one of my pet peeves about the Buddhist communities is, is when you know a bunch of people come into a room and they're all silent and everybody's all spiritual and they meditate and then one person sits up there and everybody looks at that one person and that person talks and then everybody goes oh yeah bows and goes home and they never connect with each other and I know Mark has worked hard at breaking that cycle in this center and. Um, and more and more, we're seeing that in the in the Buddhist communities. But for a long time, it was very much like that, and that was one of the reasons why I, as an alcoholic, was able to hide out in the Buddhist world without really revealing that all of the dysfunction in my life. And I didn't, you know, I wasn't connecting with others. And it's one of the things that I reasons that I like bringing in twelve step 
concepts because in AA it's all about the community. It's all about that fabric and that connection and how we can come in. And, and I would say that uh, even the way that we practice that in AA is even more powerful than the traditional cultures where uh, everything was kept more in the family. So if there was an addiction or a problem like that, the family took care of it. And, and in this culture, the AA culture, you come and you confess to the community, you, you share with that community, and they support you, which you know works better for our, in our culture at this time, uh, considering what's happened to our family fabric. But I'm not sure how that relates to the question about mindfulness. So you talk about how mindfulness is separated out from oh, the right. And I Traditional cultures and you know Indian culture, Chinese culture. These cultures are ancient, and they're you know this culture in this country is a couple hundred years old. You know they're and and it's founded on this idea of start on the east coast and wind up on the west coast. Sort of you know there's that manifest destiny kind of moving across your and whenever you don't like things. If you get mad at your parents or you get mad at your boss, you just quit and move on, move further west. You know? um, so, so um, yeah, I mean, I think that obviously there's wisdom in traditional ways. And there's also, you know, I mean, here you are, you know. Um, there's also limitations in that. And, and, and yeah, I, I mean... You know, I, I'm from Pennsylvania, you know, and I grew up the youngest of five boys. And uh, it, it occurred to me one day when I found myself on the other edge of the continent that I had gotten as far away from my family as I possibly could without falling into the ocean. You know. And, um, you know, that wasn't intentionally intentional, but certainly there was some part of me that wanted to get away. And, and, uh, and our culture kind of welcomes that. Uh, and, and that allowed me to become the person. I, it's very unlikely. I mean, my two brothers who still live in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, have not changed a whole lot. No. And I don't, I don't think that the, what, I, what I went through and the person I became would have been possible had I been tied to a traditional family form. You know, I would have had these responsibilities and I would have just had a very narrow idea of what my possibilities were. Um, nonetheless, uh, you know, certainly, I mean, this is why people are drawn, why people in the West are drawn to Asian culture is because of that sense that there's some almost inherent wisdom in people. And it's, it's a stereotyping in some ways, but it's, in some ways it's true. There is this deeply woven 
wisdom into Indian culture that, that we're very drawn to. Yes. I know that research privilege thing, but I'm curious, can you say a little bit about what you're doing or what you're adding to it? One of the reasons I'm curious is because a lot of the research that comes to my mind, especially the stuff with fMRIs and PETs, you know, there's mindfulness for pasana and concentration samadhi, and it, it seems like it, a lot of times it's tilted a little bit more towards the concentration side than the mindfulness side. That's easier to watch. Yeah. Um, so can you say a little bit about your, what you're doing? Yeah, I, they actually got mad at me when I wrote a big blog about the whole thing. You can't do this, you're going to spoil our whatever. You know, they're, they're, I forget what they call like their population of people they're drawing from. It's like a jury pool or something. Um, sure, I mean, they're, they're not doing anything like that kind of brain research. They're not looking at people's brains. What they're, what they're doing is they're trying to create a mindfulness-based eating program like mindfulness-based stress reduction. And so they, and it's, they're building off, there was another researcher at Indiana State who has a program called MB Eat, Mindfulness-Based Eating Awareness Training. And they can, and she was working with binge eaters, and so they're taking this, which was an eight-week course, turning it into a 16-week course, and using things like mindfulness of hunger level, mindfulness of fullness level, teaching people working with with flavor, taste, and satiety, they call it satiety. Um, and then also educating them more about nutrition uh, without uh, <coughs> defining, saying you should eat this or you should not eat that. Because part of the philosophy behind this is that you should be able to eat anything, but uh, it's a lot of it is about like how much you eat. <laughs> I mean, this is sort of a pr problem in our country, right? You go out, oh, well, if I eat all this three times a day, of course I'm going to become obese. You know, that's... It's uh, so um, have to go against the stream, as Noah Lewine says. Um, so it's it's kind of uh, in some ways they're fishing for answers. I mean, part of what they teach is just meditation and try to get people to be more just you know bring that kind of calming and also um, little mini meditations, like right before you eat, notice how you're feeling. You know. Notice if there's this like grasping toward it, and then as you're eating, notice you know all that happens during that process. Of, you know, am I full? Am I eating past the level of fullness I need to eat? So it's yeah, and and then they're you know at, you know they do this thing, and then they track the people for a while to see if they lost weight, they, you know, see if they're staying with the program. Sort of typical stuff. They have to get like 200. They have to put 200 participants through it before they have enough data to be able to make a you know, report. My recollection of that research is that it's usually mixed. You there's nothing that works really well. Well, the and I have talked to a woman in Indiana. Oh yeah, Jean Costeller. Yeah, yeah. and um, yeah. So this project is. That trying to uh, the, the first round we did in the spring actually had a better success rate than hers in terms of actually everybody lost weight um, whereas in her 
things that because certain because of certain aspects of the structure of the of the program, some people lost weight, but some people actually gained weight. So um, I think there was more of an emphasis in this one on on the uh, not just on the mindfulness, but the actually what you do, <laughs> the effort part. You know, yeah. So just taking a moment to breathe and come back into your body if you happen to have left it in the last few minutes. When we practice together, we often close by dedicating the merit of what we've done, the merit of this work, whatever benefit may have come from it to the awakening of all beings. And while that can seem like a lofty ideal, we can start by just recognizing that when we practice, when we cultivate the quality of mindfulness, of loving kindness, compassion in ourselves, that those whom we can't encounter in our lives gain some benefit from that. And as we go out into our lives and spread those qualities and touch others, that they too may spread those qualities as well as they are infused with kindness and calm from us. So in this way, we can see that our practice is benefiting beings. We might not see that it's benefiting all beings right now. But ultimately, this is the purpose. May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May I receive the blessings of my life. May those I love receive the blessings of my life. May those I do not love receive the blessings of my life. May all those in this hall receive the blessings of my life. May all beings receive the blessings of my life. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark, for having me this weekend. So thanks again, Kevin. Hope to see you next year, if not sooner, maybe this summer. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.